and church, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 119. We are continuing here in our summer series. This morning we'll be in verses 89 through 96. Elijah, I'm not going to bite. Come a little closer to me. Okay. <laughs> come here. Come here. Come here. All right. So let me tell you why Elijah is up here with me as you find your place this summer. As you likely know, we have two pastoral interns with us. These are young men who are members of our church who have expressed an aspiration towards vocational uh, ministry. And so all summer, our pastors, both vocational and non-vocational, have been investing in these uh, young men. We've been giving them assignments and tasks. They've been doing lots of reading, writing papers for us, getting able to watch how we do ministry and experience that uh, alongside of us. My primary task uh, with our pastoral interns is to teach them a little bit about preaching. And so the kind of culmination of that work is going to be in August, on August the 20th at our third Sunday service, our evening service, both of our pastoral interns will be preaching brief, brief, okay, <laughs> sermons, but part of learning to preach, because you got to walk before you can crawl, Part of learning to preach is learning to read. And so this week and next week, our interns will be here with me reading the text. They are not preaching this morning, but they are going to be reading the text for uh, us corporately uh, as a part of their training. So I invite you to stand with me, and I'll ask Elijah to read Psalm 119, 89 through 96 this morning. Elijah. Starting verse 89, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delay, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Thank you, Elijah. Church family, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that as a church we have the opportunity to make disciples that make disciples, that this is the mission that you have given to your local church to pass on the faith. And part of passing on the faith is training up young men who will serve as pastors in your church. God, we thank you that we've been able to, as a uh, pastoral team, as elders, invest in Elijah and Zach this summer. God, we thank you um, for what you are doing in their lives. And we pray, God, that you would use this experience that they have had this summer to further them towards gospel ministry. We pray now, God, for our time in your word together. Would you show us, Father, its permanence and its power and its perfection. Help us to stand firm in it. Let us not waver as those who are tossed to, to and fro by the winds of this world and every wave of doctrine, but let us stand firm on the firmly fixed word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Elijah, for reading our text this morning. Our sermon is entitled, Firmly Fixed. These two words you'll find in the first verse of 
this section of Psalm 119. And as I have said repeatedly in this series, the first verse of each section generally tells us what the section is about, and that is definitely true today. I was looking for a way to introduce this sermon and a phrase that I did not know the origin of came to mind, and so I did a little research. And in my research, I found that this phrase uh, was popularized. It likely existed before he used it, but it was popularized by Benjamin Franklin, circa 1789, not too many months before his death, writing to a friend in France. I did not know that he wrote this in French, and it was translated for us into English. Franklin writes, our new constitution, this is about a year after the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that it promises permanence. But in this world, nothing can be said, and this is the famous part, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. You've heard this before, right? At least the death and taxes part. Well, that's the context in which it was popularized by Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers. Now, I'm not not here to promote Benjamin Franklin as a man of faith because he was not, by his own admission, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus was a good teacher and an excellent example of morality. Franklin was a deist. He was not saved by the power of the gospel. And so a few months after writing this to his friend in France, Franklin learned that there is something far more permanent and certain than death and taxes. As he stood before an eternal, powerful, almighty, all-knowing, omnipotent, omnipresent God. Death and taxes likely in that moment for Franklin seemed trivial as he looked at the all-powerful, eternal God. Because something, church, is far more certain than anything temporal in this life. Yes, even death. And that is God himself. And God has chosen to reveal himself to us in his word, which means his word also is firmly fixed. It's permanent, powerful, and perfect. And this is the main idea of our sermon today, that the firmly fixed word of God is these three things, permanent, powerful, and perfect. We'll see this as we walk through these verses together. The first part of our Exposition is that the firmly fixed word of God is permanent. Let's look at how the psalmist writes of the permanence of God's word. He says in these first three verses of this section of Psalm 119, forever, not for a little while, not not for a moment, not even for what would seem to us to be a long while, but forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. In that Benjamin Franklin quote, he is talking about what he hoped to be the permanence of the U.S. Constitution, which has now stood for nearly two and a half 
centuries. It has been amended multiple times. So often people speak of the U.S. Constitution like it's never been changed. We've changed it some 20 plus times in our history. But it's amazing how short, and think about that, 250 years, not all that long in the course of human history, but we often, in Franklin's day, it was less than a year old, will speak about earthly things as if they will one day last forever, or if they have lasted forever. This, the beginning of the summer during my sabbatical, I had the opportunity to go to Egypt with my oldest son, and we did a lot of neat things in Egypt. One of the things we did was we did what everybody does when they go to Egypt, and that's stand at the base of the pyramids and kind of look up in awe. It's what you do. They're huge, and they are exceedingly old. The last remaining great wonder of the world, of the ancient world. I mean, it, it's, it, they're pretty incredible to see these monuments that have stood for millennia. And it feels as if when you stand there that they have been there forever. But, but, but they're not. Now, they're old. I mean, they're, they're real old. They were, they were old when the Israelites were in captivity in Israel. You know, people think, oh, the Israelites built the... No, they were old then. I mean, they had been there for a long time. But they didn't have existed forever. And they won't exist forever. They are, before your eyes, if you stand there, crumbling today. Some of the pyramids, you know, there are more than just the three that you see in pictures. Some of them have completely and entirely crumbled. They're just piles of rubble on the ground. Nothing that is man-made, nothing of this world lasts forever. And the seeming permanence of the earth itself in verse 90 is used as an illustrative point. Because we look at this world and we think it's been here for a very long time and it will continue on for forever. And so the psalmist speaks of this, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast because from our perspective, it does. From our perspective, nothing could move this earth. But let's think about the origins of this earth. What the psalmist is affirming is what we know as creation ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, that God made all that we see something from nothing. And how did he do it? He did it by his word. So if this vast universe that we look at and, and, are, and we marvel at down even to this, this planet that we live on, this earth that we live on, and we think of how unmoving it is, but it was created by the powerful word of God, then how much more permanent, how much more forever is that word that created it? That these things that are ultimately temporal in our eyes that will one day pass away, they seem forever to us because we are so temporal. We are so temporary, but we look at them and, and we see how great they are. How much greater must be the word of God by which these things were created? How much more permanent is the word that stars the planets, our own world? So let's just kind of progress here in this theological argument that the word of God is permanent and the, the earth itself illustrates that for us. Well, why? Because that which comes from God is eternal. In Psalm 90 verse 2, the 
psalmist writes to us, before the mountains were formed forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So this is what the psalmist affirms, that before the earth was made was God. This is crucial, this is a crucial point of understanding for understanding the Bible itself and for understanding the God of the Bible, that the God that exists in this world existed before this world existed. In eternity past, God was. This is the way the psalmist writes it in poetic language in Psalm 90. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So if we, our minds could imagine it, a line that runs forever one way and forever the other way, that is, that is God. There is no end to God. He is the one thing that is eternal before the mountains were formed, before the very earth was brought forth, which from our perspective seems ancient and old and permanent, there is one who existed, God. God is eternal. That same phrase from everlasting to everlasting appears elsewhere in scripture. Another one of those places is Psalm 103 verse 17 where the psalmist writes, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. So in Psalm 190, the Lord himself, everlasting to everlasting. But in Psalm 103, it is the steadfast love of the Lord that is from everlasting to everlasting, which means this. Not only is God himself everlasting, is God himself eternal, but that which proceeds forth from an eternal God is also eternal. So God himself is eternal. And Psalm 103 tells us, among other things, not just the steadfast love of the Lord, but certainly the steadfast love of the Lord is eternal. Then we go back to our text Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, is what? We could replace in poetic sense forever with that same phrase from everlasting to everlasting. They mean the same thing. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. What is the psalmist saying about the word of God? That because the word of God, which created everything, which exists for us, I'm going to spoil the ending, in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the revealed word of God written for us in the Old and the New Testaments, the word of God, because it proceeds forth from an eternal God, is itself eternal. That it has existed as a part of God. We need to think about the word of God in this way. Listen, we don't worship the, the written word of God. We do worship the word of God, but the person. We don't worship the written word of God, but we do revere the, the written word of God because it is the revealed will of God that proceeds forth from an eternal God. So in a sense, it has existed for all time because it's part of God. It was before the mountains. It was before the earth. It was before the sea. It is permanent and it will outlast all things. There is nothing in this world that will outlast the word of God because the word of God comes forth from God himself. And it is through the word that all things are 
created. The word is permanent. Number two, the firmly fixed word of God is powerful. Let's consider these middle verses together. Pick up in verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought out So I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. Now, there are two things that are happening in these middle verses that the author of the psalm is intertwining together that speaks to the powerful nature of the firmly fixed word of God. He is speaking of our salvation. And He's speaking of it, and we've dealt with this in previous psalms, but I always feel the need to explain it when we see it because it's a concept that I'm not really sure everybody in modern Christianity has fully thought through. So you've heard me say this. If you come to church here, if you're part of our church, you've heard me say this a hundred times. I promise you'll hear me say it a hundred more. When we think of salvation, we must think of it in all three tenses, past tense, present tense, future tense. You've heard this speech before, Right? that our salvation happened to us, our salvation is happening to us, and our salvation is yet to happen to us, that it is past, present, and future. In the past tense, it is that God has saved us from our sin, that God has forgiven us. The the theological word for this, the doctrinal word for this is justification, that we are justified in the eyes of God. He declares us to be righteous because we accept the righteousness of Christ and we give to Jesus our sin on the cross, right? That happens to us when we are born again, when we come to faith. These are the types of words we use to describe that moment of justification. But then there is also this present tense salvation, which we call our sanctification. This is the process of going from one degree of glory to another, being made into the image of God. This is, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us obedient to Christ and his word. Now, why explain that again for the hundredth time to us? Because what the psalmist is doing here is he's interweaving these ideas. Let me read these four verses for us again. And I want you to try to listen to past tense and and present tense. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. What does he say? If you hadn't saved me, I would still be dead in my trespasses and sin, right? I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me, past tense, life, right? I am yours. Save me. Now, he said, I've been saved, but now he's present tense saying, I am your save me for I have sought your precepts. So how is it that God is saving him present tense? Through his word. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. This again, present tense, that there is, there is evil and persecution as the psalmist has written about previously in this psalm, that these things are all around him. They're pressing in on him presently. But what does he do? He considers the testimonies of God. So God's word provides all that we need to be saved, past tense, and God's word provides all that we need to be sanctified, sustained, to continue in the salvation of God. Now let's see that in 
other places of scripture of how this kind of works out in our lives. The first place I want us to see is in Hebrews chapter four. The author of Hebrews, it's the one New Testament book we don't know the author to, who's one of the apostles or somebody connected to an apostle, um, writes in Hebrews about the word of God. This is a fairly famous saying, fairly famous scripture about God's word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what, what the author of Hebrews is saying about God's word is that God's word is able to get down into places that we don't even think about or know exist in our lives, that it's able to divide. That's what, what does a sword do? A sword cuts things, right? So the word is able because it is so sharp. It's sharper than any sword. It's able to divide these things, to kind of reveal them to us. When we, when we say things, you know, kind of church speak, to rightly divide the word of God, what that means is to rightly show and to explain it. Well, that's what the word of God does personally in our lives is it cuts us open and reveals to us who we really are. So we are able to test our salvation then against God's word. We're able to do, we're able to ask questions like, do I do what the psalmist did? Is the law of God my delight? Because without it, I would still be in my affliction. Verse 90, do I do that? Have I, by the truth of God's word and the power of his gospel, been made alive in Christ, or am I still wallowing in the mud of my affliction? Do I live by his precepts? Have I found life in them? Have I cried out to God, save me? When the wicked attack me, do I rely on the word of God or do I scheme and plot and plan in the same way that the world does? The word of God is able to divide our hearts, our soul, our spirit. The word of God is able to reveal those things to us because it is powerful. There is nothing more powerful in this word, in this world than God's word. It is only his word that can do that. And as we, like the psalmist does, dedicates himself to God's word, it shows us our desperate need for salvation, makes us grateful for the salvation, if we have experienced it, that we have experienced in life. And it continues to show us how we rid ourselves of sin and walk in the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. The word of God does this. Because it is powerful. Now, another place I want us to go is another fairly famous verse about the word of God, 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's the, the way that the promise that Paul makes to Timothy about the word of God is similar to what the psalmist is saying in verse 95 about the word of God. When the psalmist has experienced this affliction and he looks to the word of God, 
Think about what Paul is writing to Timothy about that same word. That the word of God, which is from God, it's breathed out by God. It's profitable for these things. Teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete. So Paul is talking about how the word works in our sanctification. That ongoing process of that present tense being saved. And here's what he says. It, it, it does all of these things. It doesn't do some of them. It doesn't make us mostly what we need. It makes us all what we need. Listen, if there's anything that I could pray for our church, it would be this. Lord, make us a church that is reliant above all else on the truth of your word. Make us a people that look to the power of your word and stand firm on it, firmly fixed as it is, above the wisdom of this world, above our own wisdom in our own mind and what we have been convinced to be true by the world instead of looking to your word because his word is 100% powerful. It is what makes the man or woman of God complete, equipped for every good work. It's the word of God that does this because the word of God is power. It is permanent and it's powerful. And finally, it is perfect. The firmly fixed word of God is perfect. He concludes this in verse 96, this section of the psalm. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now, He's concluding this section, and remember this section as a whole. And so we have to think about what he said at the beginning, and then you think about what he's saying now, and, and we'll understand. The, the, the key here is the words, I have seen. So what is it the psalmist has seen? The psalmist has seen the temporal, the temporary. The psalmist has seen the earth. And from his perspective at the beginning of the psalm, the earth seems unmoving, Right? The earth seems to be established and standing fast. That is the perspective he has at the beginning. The perspective that he has at the end, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Meaning this earth, this created thing that we see is limited. But your commandment, a synonym for your word, your commandment is exceedingly broad. So creation is limited. That which we can see is limited. But that which comes from God, that which emits forth from an eternal, powerful God is perfect. Now this should sound somewhat familiar to you because in my absence during my sabbatical, 10 of my friends stood here in this pulpit and preached through the book of Ecclesiastes for you, which the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is exactly the same point that the psalmist is making here at the end of this section. That that which we can see in this life is, to use the the preacher's words from Ecclesiastes, vanity. Among other things, the vanities of Ecclesiastes are human wisdom, human labor, human purpose, envy, greed, fame, wealth, coveting, frivolity, recognition even work. I mean, these are things that, that 
the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes sees as vanities of this world. He sees them as limiting, that perfection doesn't truly exist under the sun, that there are limits to the things in this world. He opens Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 1, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. So the psalmist in verse 96 of Psalm 119, I have seen a limit to all perfection. If you ascribe Ecclesiastes to being written by Solomon and you ascribe Psalm 119 to being written by David, then this is a dad and both of those are somewhat in question, but nonetheless, both the word of God, this is possibly at least a father and a son, both writing about the same central truth that they have seen limits to this world. But there is something that lasts forever. There is something that is permanent. There is something that is powerful and something that is perfect. And it is God's word. Which is why when we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 12, we read, The end of the matter has all been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So what's the conclusion to Psalm 119, 89 through 96? And the whole book of Ecclesiastes is that the things that we see with our eyes are limited. They're vanity. But that which comes forth from God is perfect. So what do we do? We fear the one who is perfect and we obey his word, which is perfect. Fear doesn't mean to tremble in the corner. Fear means to place in its right position. We respect God. We, we recognize that he alone is God, that he alone is perfect, that he alone is eternal. We respect God for who he is, and we obey that which has come from him, his word. See, this all sounds really great in, like, theology terms. Like this would be a great thing to sit around with, you know, theologically minded people and, and to talk about just how, how eternal God is. But some of you are saying, preacher, I, I, need a, I need a little bit of like grounding for a moment. I, 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 need, I, I, I believe that. Now, what do I actually do? Okay. Now, normally the very end of my sermon, the so what is what you're supposed to do, but I'm going to get to the do before I actually get to it. All right. Here it is. Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 gives what is the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon, the sermon on the Mount is full of Jesus saying things like, you have heard it said, but, but I tell you, it's, it's a kingdom ethic that Jesus is giving. Jesus is saying, if you're going to live according to the kingdom of God, then this is how you're going to live. It's a sermon about obedience, about perfect obedience, which we never demonstrate, but Jesus perfectly demonstrated, right? What does it mean to actually live in Christ? And he gets to the very end of it. And he tells a story. He says this in verse 24 of Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So what am I supposed to do? 
You're supposed to build your life on the truth of God's word. This is how Jesus concludes the most famous sermon of all time that is about what does it mean to live as a part of the kingdom of God. You're faced with two choices. You can build your life on that which is temporal, the sand, and will ultimately crumble beneath your feet, or you can build your life on the only thing that is permanent and powerful and perfect, the very word of God revealed to us from God. You can say today, regardless of what the wisdom of this world says, I am going to live as God says. This is what we do. And we just do this daily. We do it in our finances. We do it in our marriages. We do it in our child rearing. We do it in our relationships with each other. We do it in our relationships with the world. We do it with the things that we consume and the things that come out of us. We just build our lives on the truth of God's word. Now, hold on a second. One of the reasons I want us to go through Psalm 119 over the course of three summers, so we kind of come back to it, is because... It, it really speaks over and over about the word of God. It speaks over and over about the same thing. This should be a great thing for us to dwell in as a congregation for three consecutive summers. It's a great reminder to us of our need for God's word. And so if this is the first time that you have picked up God's word since last week when you were sitting in here, you're not really demonstrating your need for God's word in the way that Psalm 119 teaches us our need for it. For you to build your house on the rock, on the teachings of Jesus, for you to hear his words and to do them, it's going to require you to be dedicated to it, for you to love it, for you to know it. And no, you're not going to do that all at once. You're going to grow in it. It's it's going to be something that you have to discipline yourself towards. And maybe you've walked with Christ for a long time and you've never really disciplined yourself towards a love for his word. I would challenge you with this. There is no time like the present to begin. It's not too late to recognize just how firm a foundation we have in the word of God. So what? We should trust and obey the written and living firmly fixed word of God. Let's start with the living. I told you I was giving the end away about 30 minutes ago. I said that because here's what we know. When we say the word of God, most often we're talking about his revealed will in scripture to us. But that is not the only way. And I would say that is not the primary way we should speak about the word of God. When we say that in reverence and awe, what we should be thinking first and foremost is not a book, but a person. John chapter 1, the apostle John begins his story of the life of Jesus with this great theological argument. He says, in the beginning, so before everything existed, was the Word. Now notice it's capitalized there because it is a person. And the Word was with God and the Word was God He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hear me today. Jesus is the living word of God. He is the bodily expression of, in the flesh, expression of the permanent, powerful, and perfect word of God. Look to him today if you have not and be saved. Now, we know of Jesus because of the written, revealed word of God to us. People that believe, that say they believe in Jesus but don't believe in the Bible confound me. I don't know how you get to that point. How can you say you want to follow the teachings of Jesus but not follow the Bible when where we learn about Jesus, is, it's in the Bible. So, so we've got to be people that are both. But know this. Reading the Bible is not going to save you. Believing the Bible presents good principles to live by, which is fairly aligned with what Benjamin Franklin believed. The Bible presented some good principles, some moralistic principles to live by. That's not going to save you. All the morality in this world can't save you. Only the living word of God who became flesh so that he might die in your place, offering to you the forgiveness of your sin, taking your sin on the cross and imparting to you his righteousness when you are born again. Only through faith in that work of Jesus can you be saved. So believe in Jesus today, trust in Jesus today and be saved. But know this, when we trust in him, we also obey him. And to obey Jesus is to obey his written, firmly fixed word. So we talked about how John introduced the life of Jesus. Now look at, look, look, look at something that John records at the very end of the earthly life of Jesus. In what is known as the high priestly prayer in John 17. It's fairly long. I'm just going to read a few verses of it here. Jesus prays for his disciples. Sanctify them in the truth And he says this, your word, notice lowercase, your word is truth. This is the written, revealed will of God in the scriptures for us. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. To say I follow Jesus, but I don't obey the Bible is not, is to say I don't truly follow Jesus. Because to follow Jesus is to follow his word. And it is by his word that we are sanctified. Hear me, church. Trust and obey the written and living, firmly fixed word of God. And by doing so, we follow the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 7. seven, We plant our feet on a rock that will not be moved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have spoken to us through prophets and priests and kings and apostles so that we might know your firmly fixed word so that we might look to him, Jesus, and be saved and that we might then obey him through what has been written. Thank you, God. 
that you offer to us, salvation that is found only in Christ and that you then give us the ability to walk in him through obedience to the instruction of your word. Let us worship the living word and live by the written word as he instructed us to, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you hear this call today to be saved and you say, I want to respond to that. I want to believe in that Jesus. I want to have that salvation. At the end of the service, I'm going to be out in the lobby. We'll have other pastors out there. We'd love to talk with you. Why don't you just come find me? Let me share with you how you can believe the gospel unto salvation and then how you can begin a life of obedience. For church, for the saved in this room, what we do now is we worship, not the Bible, not the written word, but we worship the living word as the written word has instructed us to do as a part of our sanctification. So stand with me as we do just that.